Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's podcast, I speak with comedian Leanne Lord about travel, parenting, and living a better life through comedy. Leanne Lord is a comedian who was featured in the book version of A Better Life. In the book, she wrote, I've been humbled by that audience member who has sought me out after a show to hug me, shake my hand, look me in the eye, and tell me they've just lost their job, a loved one, they've been diagnosed with cancer, and more than anything in the world, they needed to laugh, and I helped them do that. Usually, you know, especially if it's a formal setting, you know, that's like a formal comedy show, people are actually really coming together for that, uh, that end. Um, but you can also have it be incidental, you know, by making a joke at the right time to sort of diffuse uh, a tense situation. You know, when you're laughing, there's that you know, I, I don't have the right technical terms for this, but the the physical or, or shall I say the, the, the chemical things that change in the body, you know, the, the endorphins that, that flood that literally change your state of mind or your, your, your how you're feeling at the moment. So comedy gives that release to people. And I think it's important, and I want to say particularly now, but it's always tense. There's always something going on. But it, it does serve in those times where people are really angry and always want to argue and it's very stressful. And, and to look at those, those comics that, that I in particular admire, you know, like George Carlin or Franklin Ajay or, you know, your, your bevy of late night uh, talk show hosts who take really serious issues that, you know, on the face are not funny and make light. And I think the power of that is you get people to laugh and it takes, it gives them that, makes them take that cleansing breath, so to speak, in the form of laughter. And then come back a little bit clearer, a little bit more energized to go, okay, the seriousness of this situation didn't go away, but we're coming to it with, uh, perhaps a clearer mind and a lighter heart. Not that the situation is light, but we need to sometimes take a step back from it and comedy allows uh, us to do that or to even make light of something that really isn't that serious as we take ourselves as a species so very seriously. Everything is dire. Everything is DEFCON 5 and it's not. Mm-hmm. And, and, and comedy reminds us, it sort of you know, uh, makes us giggle and step back from the ledge so to speak. So I, I know, I know that I, I said I was going to be succinct and I did the exact opposite, but, but it's because comedy has that ability and that power, you know, and, and I, it's not, I often say it's not rock and science or, or, or brain surgery, but it is helpful. We need that, that release as a species, you know, cause we, we are very, we're an odd little group. <laughs> Now, does that go for the comedian as well, or is it simply the audience? How do, what does the comedian get from the comedy? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I think I can speak for many, many comics where we say this is, you know, the art of doing stand-up, the art of getting on stage, or even the, the, the work we do beforehand 
is how we make sense of the world, how we process it. You know, we're the ones going, and, and this is sort of a, a, I'm paraphrasing a Bill Hicks quote here, you know, the, the comic is the one in the room after everything's all settled that goes, wait a minute. <laughs> You know, so we absolutely get something out of that transaction, both being able to make sense of what's going on and then to get on stage and give voice to what other people are thinking as well, uh, but maybe not brave enough to get on stage and make fun and do it in a, in a, in a funny way, uh, or also to take the audience in a direct they never suspected, which is, you know, the art of the punchline, you know, you, the art of misdirection. So we absolutely get something uh, out of that. It really is when it's working, it's sort of like a dance, you know, where the partners come together. It's you as the comic and the audience and the music starts, which is your comedy. And then they're answering a uh, uh, part of the of the dance is is their laughter and their understanding and and we're creating something wonderful uh at the end there is something and i think most performers will attest to this something freeing about being that open on stage you know most people are terrified to do it i feel that's where i feel normal where, where life makes sense for me on stage. So I don't, I don't have that thing <laughs> that most people have that tells them, danger, danger, get off stage. People are looking at you. It's just the opposite. It's like, yay, people are looking. People are listening. Um, so you, as an artist, and whether it's you know, stand-up or music, um, but particularly stand-up, you really are uh, quite bare. And the reward for that is the money you save in therapy. But, but also when you're that honest, you know, whatever it is you're talking about, there will be people in the audience that feel that, you know, that you, like you've gotten in their head somehow and you've read their diary <laughs> and you're, you're laying it out there, you know, you're the one who's saying it, but they're feeling it as well. So it, in, in that sense, it's a service. And, you know, then all of a sudden your vulnerability is not just your own, you know, you've, you've spoken for other people that you don't know, and then they feel this connection with you because you've sort of spoken what's in their heart or in their mind. And so it, that bravery of being vulnerable is rewarded by other people going, thank you, you know, cause we feel that way too. Do you think that's one of the things about comedy is it shows how, similar we all are yes and no because we don't all laugh at the same things mm -hmm. um the, you know that speaks to the subjectivity of comedy you know what one person will think is funny someone else will be offended and it seems people seek to be offended a lot mm -hmm. these days which makes stand up uh very different usually the rule is the closer to home it hits the less funny it is for someone um but by and large, yes, you know, you are able to strike that chord and you want to do that or, you know, you can do that with, you know, as many people as possible. You're not going to get everybody. For example, if I'm doing a show at a college, they're not going to get jokes about marriage. Yes, they understand, you know, intellectually the institution, but they don't have the life experience that will get into why particular very, you know, minute things are funny. 
Um, so there really is also the burden on the comic of what relationship are we going to have? What are our commonalities? And starting from there, you know, um, it, it, I, I liken it to a blind date. You know, I, I, I walk in, the audience walks in, you know, we may not know each other, you know, if they haven't come to just see me. And it's that opening conversation. What do we have in common? What do we like? And sometimes it doesn't work out. <laughs> sometimes you get to the end of the night, you know, the end of the evening, the end of the date, you know, and it's like, uh, I'm not going to call you. You're not going to call me. We're never going to speak of this again because we just couldn't, you know, get that commonality together that would allow us to make fun of and laugh at the same thing. So it doesn't always work, which is the horror and beauty of it. So can you tell me a little bit about your background? Were you raised in a religious environment? Um, were you raised in a, an environment where comedy was very important? Um, actually, both. Um, my, it's weird. I had uh, both, well, both my parents, my mom and my dad, uh, both my mom and dad are very, very funny people. Um, not always on purpose, you know, because their parents and parents sometimes are, you know, unintentionally funny. But I, I grew up in a household with a lot of love, a lot of laughter, uh, a lot of storytelling. You know, dare I say I had a normal childhood, which is probably why I'm not superstar famous because I don't have enough problems stemming from my childhood. But I, I, so I had that as a as more of a foundation uh, for life, and then my mom. Uh, was not religious, but put me in a religious school. She put me in Catholic school because it was the best school in the neighborhood. You know, I mean, honestly, if it had been a Jewish school or if it had been Hogwarts, you know, that's where she would have sent me. So it just ended up that I became Catholic because I wasn't born Catholic. I wasn't, you know, you know, baptized as a child, you know, as a, as a baby. It was only putting me in that school. And then my mom, being who she is, went all in. You know, once I was there, uh, you know, I later became baptized, you know, first communion, you know, uh, the confirmation. And then she became Catholic as well, you know, because, you know, Catholic parents, Catholic kids get discounts on tuition. And she was all about that. So she did that. And, when, and so I, I was sort of, you know, raised in that direction. My dad, not religious at all, really thought we could have just found a good public school. You know, but whatever, you know, my mom was in charge of it. And he honestly was just a good dude. You know, one of the most ethical people I have ever met without religion. You know, so I had that balance. And he never really spoke against me going to Catholic school, but did, you know, one way or the other, he was like, I think you're going to be a good person, you know because that's how your mother and I are raising you. This is, you know, ancillary. Um, and so, and so as, you know, Catholic school, you know, as I got older and they were able to answer less and less or fewer and fewer of life's important questions. And the more and more it seemed, um, not relevant, the more I pulled away from it. And my dad was always supportive. My mom, I think did one of the most amazing things ever. Um, I was 18 and, you know, I was going off to a regular, you know, a public college. And at that point I sat her down. I said, listen, I don't want to go to church anymore. I feel like I'm being a hypocrite. I don't believe this. And she still did, but she had enough, I, I guess, faith in me to say, okay, I trust you. You know, you have to do what's right for you. And so she did not give me an ounce of grief over it. 
And I feel very, very fortunate that they both think they raised me well enough that I could make my own decisions based in that. Would she want me to go to church? Absolutely. You know, I know that's what she wants, but she was good enough to, once I became an adult, not force it on me, which I think is extraordinary, especially for someone who's so incredibly religious. I mean, she got more religious as she got older, which I guess is how that curve works. Um, you know, you get older, you get scared, you get whatever, you know, so she's like black belt Catholic. And I'm like, really lady, <laughs> you know, but we, what we do have is what's more important is a love and respect for each other and what we believe. And I don't force her to go my path and she doesn't force me to do hers, which I wish we could do that more in the world. So yeah, long story in my background. <laughs> no, no, that's good. Yeah, Catholic school from third grade to 12th. And then I was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> was there one thing in particular that drove you away from it? It's the death by a thousand cuts. You know, it was, you know, all these little things that didn't add up and not taking my questions seriously. You know, we had lay teachers in, in for religion class, you know, and I would ask about you know, you know, kids that were, you know, of other religions or, you know, and just not getting real answers. And I, I think the real sort of, you know, nail on the cross to be, you know, completely disrespectful was when I did meet, when I finally got out of sort of that Catholic school arena and was exposed to people of different walks of life and each of them thinking that their religion was it. And I'm like, well, that can't be. How is that possible? And wait, wait, you think I'm going to hell? Wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. And then meeting decent people who did not, you know, they weren't, they didn't go to church or they weren't raised. I like, more people like my dad. And going, okay, maybe this isn't, you know, what it's all cracked up to be. Um, and definitely I really was not a big fan of, uh, how women were treated in the church. Like I, we always had this secondary position when, and as far as I was concerned, aside from priests, women were running everything. So I'm like, this doesn't make any sense at all to me. Like, why would you discount half like, or more than half, you know, in terms of who's actually going to church? of your power base, of, of your membership. That was insane to me. And I'm like, why would I subject myself to that? And then being African-American, I was like, I'm like, this is a real scam. This is the same religion that said it was okay to enslave us. Like, so what kind of, uh, you know, Stockholm syndrome is this that we're still going to practice this? I mean, I just, it, it's again, so it, major, you know, little things that kept adding up to going, mm, I can't do this. I, I, I can't reconcile it in my head and consider myself, you know, a logical thinking, growing, you know, human being. What made you want to get involved as a comedian in the atheist, secular, humanist world? Um, one actually had absolutely nothing to do with the other. Um, I, you know, I'm a, a comedian who happens to be atheist, you know, I, so I didn't approach it from that aspect. I mean, there are comics that that's what they do. They do atheist humor. My journey to, I guess, non-belief or to free thought 
was my journey as a human being separate from uh, being a comic. And it just so happens that, you know, as I did that, I would incorporate it into my comedy. So, you know, the comedy didn't push me on that path. It's just, you know, they sort of blended uh, as I'm just trying to figure out my path on the planet, <laughs> so to speak. And so you've brought comedy into the atheist secular world as well. What, what has that journey been like? A big surprise, actually. You know, it, it, I get invited to uh, perform or appear at events and, and conferences, I think, because, I mean, I'm there and they're like, oh, you do comedy, we should bring you in. You know, and I, I try to be very clear that I'm like, I'm not an atheist comic. I'm a comic who's an atheist. And they seem fine with that because um, there, yeah. are, there are comics that do it incredibly well. Like, that's their whole thing. Um, I think what I bring to it, um, is, yeah, I'm going to talk about it. Yeah. I'm going to give you, you know, jokes based on, you know, my experience, you know, the fact that, um, I, as a woman, I'm not religious. I can't be, you know, cause I, I like my lady parts, <laughs> but I, I think the movement, you know, as it is appreciates just like anyone else, the opportunity to put down the burden and laugh, you know, we get, Gosh, we get so caught up, and and rightly so. We get so caught up in you know what is the next step, and what are we fighting, and what is the what do we do? You know, and there's so many causes and so much you know that we're doing and working on that we forget to take a breath. We forget to get together and have a good time. Everything's not doesn't have to be a debate. We can just have fun. And we can have fun, you know, talking about, you know, the, the insanity of religion. We can talk about dating because guess what? Atheists date. Atheists get married. You know, it, you know they, we, we have this whole, you know, picture that is our lives um, that we shouldn't and, and, and yeah, we, that we shouldn't neglect. And so I, I like to think that I'm a comic that will round that out, you know, while, you know, speaking to, you know, in some small way, uh, being secular. And so this idea of trying to not let us forget what it is we're fighting for. Yes, let's remember our humanity mm -hmm. and, and the complexity and totality of that humanity, you know, we are not one dimensional people. We are not, what I don't believe in is not the, the sole thing that defines me. If I, if I'm, if that's what's happening, I'm doing it wrong. I'm doing it really wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I won't put that on anyone else. I will absolutely say that for me. Um, I, I, I do think though that that's going down the rabbit hole and becoming as evangelical as someone who goes to church seven days a week. Yeah. You know, I, I do try. And you listen, none of this for me is written in stone. You know, I, I want to think that I have more of a heart and a mind to continue growing and learning than I did when I was in school. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't have it all down. You know, I'm, I'm taking in new information, which is what we're supposed to be doing, I think, you know, and uh, evolving in the colloquial sense of the word. Um, I, I think I'm pretty solid on, you know, yeah, no God, 
you know, I think that that one, I'm, I'm, you know, pretty set. But then that puts us into the other um, uh, arena, which is, you know, what your book is all about. Okay, yeah, okay. There's, there's no God. The, uh, the sweet by and by isn't really happening. So now the onus is on us. It, in terms of how do we live now? How do we do that? You know, knowing that you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, we're gone. You know, so we're making the most to here and now. And how do we do that? And how do we be, how do we be full and funny and fabulous human beings? You know, and not treat other people like crap. <laughs> <laughs> not treating other people like crap. That's a good motto to go by. Well, I wasn't sure if I could curse on your podcast. I didn't want you to have to put the little e in for iTunes because I used a I, I I used an explicit word, so I was trying to be mindful. <laughs> I think crap is okay. I think crap is okay. The other four little word, maybe not so much. Um, although I have no problem with profanity. Mm-hmm. I was an English major. I believe in in you know you use the language you know, where and when and how it's appropriate. You know, those those words don't offend me. And I know how much you love words because you actually came out with a book about words. I did. I did. Yes. Dict jokes. And I'm enunciating the T. Um, that's mm-hmm. D-I-C-T, short for dictionary. And uh, I mean, the, it, it was so silly. It, it's very silly. But the world needs a little bit of uh, uh, smart, silly things. Uh, the whole idea is that words would be more fun if they meant what they sound like. Mm-hmm. It's like, like grammatology should be the study of grandmothers. It's not, but it sounds like that's what the word is. And that, that actually really traces back to my childhood. I had like those parents, when I asked what a word meant, they would tell me to look it up. And I didn't want to get up and get the dictionary because that's back when you had to get up and get the dictionary. It wasn't just there on your phone mm-hmm. or your computer. And you know, I would sit there and try my best to figure out the word from the context of what it sounded like. And so that was a, it became a fun game I did with myself. Uh, Cause you know, lonely childhood, that's what you do. Uh, <laughs> and, but I, I ended up, you know, being a voracious reader and I would still do that. And I started posting the words on Facebook and it just grew. And someone said, you should write a book. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to write a book. They're like, you should do a book. And I'm like, you know what? Why not? And that's how, you know, it got started, you know, and, and what's really fun for me is, you know, I still, I still post a word a day, you know, five days a week and to have people come back with what they think the word sounds like it means. And I get to just just get great stuff from people and great interactions. And my favorite is when people say, well, I don't know if this is what it is, but it sounds like this to me. And I'm like, that's the whole point. We're making it up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's no rules to this. And, and the sneaky part is that I still give you what the word really means, and it's part of speech. So if you're a word person and you actually do want to know the actual definition or hear some odd words that you won't come across in regular everyday language, you get that mm-hmm. from me. So that's the sneaky little, yeah, you might actually learn some real vocabulary here, but, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, just <laughs> hiding it in, in silliness. So you're getting us to eat our linguistic vegetables. <laughs> yes, exactly. I like the way you phrase that. <laughs> love because I've had teachers who are like, oh my god, my kids would love this, you know, or or parents who say they do the words with their kids in the car, you know, or they give it to their their kids who are studying for the SAT because it kind of relieves the pressure a little bit. Um, I, I've always found that amazing. We make kids, you know, high schoolers learn all these words, 
And then right after they have to regurgitate them for the test, they're told, oh, well, you know, don't use big words because it makes you sound too intelligent and adults don't use that much vocabulary. So it's like, what are we doing here? What's this, what's this mixed message? You know, and God forbid you use big words, you know, then you're, you know, people look at you like, oh, you're trying to be fancy. Yeah, I am trying to be fancy. Where are some of the places that you've traveled that have inspired you the most? Right here. Uh, I've been to 45 of the states of the United States. I'm missing five. You know, the upper, you know, the Pacific Northwest eludes me. Oh, you need to go. It's amazing. That's what I hear. So mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest people, feel free to invite me. You have comedy clubs. You have atheist groups. Come invite me um, so I can finish my map. But being able to see the country, um, you know, in its, you know, breathtaking beauty and diversity and yet scary sameness, depending on where you go, um, I think is essential. You know, people think that you have to leave the United States to travel. It's nice, you know, but try going to the state next door. Try that. You know, let's let baby steps. Um, in terms of, well, and, th- and, and out of that, I think the, the most inspiring place within the country that I've been to is the Grand Canyon. I, it was, and I hate to sound stereotypical, but it really, really was beautiful. I, I was, I was only a teenager when I saw it, but I remember standing there thinking, I have to come back here with someone I love. Now that hasn't happened yet, but I am ever hopeful. <laughs> and at the very least, I will go back with just myself because hopefully I would have learned to appreciate myself by then. <laughs> You're going to love yourself and take yourself I'm there. I love myself which sounds really inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to have to put the E on this podcast. Yeah. Oh, darn it. You know, there's some there's some uh, connection between or atheists and the Grand Canyon because I had Andrew Seidel on a couple of weeks ago and he used to be a tour guide at the Grand Canyon. Get out. Yeah, yeah. So I think okay. we're going to have to have an atheist convention at the Grand Canyon. That would be awesome. That would totally be but now, now, here's the thing. When I tell people I went to the Grand Canyon, they're like, oh, did you go down into it? And did you camp? I'm like, no, 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 I'm not doing any of that. I'm not a roughing it kind of girl. You're from the city. Uh, right, exactly. I went, I saw, I went shopping. I mean, that that is the extent of my <laughs> appreciation of the Grand Canyon was to be able to appreciate it visually. Um, yeah, hopping on a horse or a mule. And yeah, I don't need that. I don't, I don't need that to complete the picture for me. What are your plans for the future? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Well, my immediate plans, actually, my, I guess you can call it my, my latest passion project is, um, I'm launching a podcast. Uh, it's called people with parents and it's the idea that, um, the relationship with our parents is probably the most complicated one we have. And no one ever teaches us how to manage it, you know, especially when they get old. You know, how does that happen? Uh, and it, it, it really sort of came out of the idea that I, I came off the road. You know, I traveled, you know, hardcore for years and toured. And then I came home and there were these two old people in my house instead of my parents. And it's like, whoa, where did you people come from? You know, like I want to write a children's book, like, like, where do old people come from and why do they smell like that? But, but I felt very, very blindsided by, you know, aging parents. And then like, how, why am I in charge now? Why, why are they asking me questions? Like, they're the grownups. And then sort of handling this role reversal 
that's happening. It's this this brand new world, and and a lot of it is is some funny stuff, you know, just because my parents are funny people. But it is an adjustment I didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. And I'm not prepared for. And, you know, as, I, as I'm talking to more and more people, I'm like, oh, this is a thing. You know, they, they call it the sandwich generation. You know, this is, you know, this is happening to people. And so that's what I want to talk about, like how you navigate that role reversal, how you navigate that relationship with people who bore you. You know, they, they changed your diapers and they, they went with you through your teenage years and your young adult years. And like, well, now we're adults together. How how do we do that? So, people with parents is is what I'm doing. I'm really happy about it because uh, I think that's that's one of those uh, commonalities that you asked about that crosses cultures. That because we all have parents, you know, we all have a family. You know, fingers crossed. You know, e- even if it's not a biological family, it's an adoptive family that people that we we love and care about become vulnerable. And what happens when you are in the position of you're their caretaker, you're the one they look to. I started posting these things, once again, Facebook. I would post these, this hashtag called hashtag parent problems. And it would be these conversations that would happen with my parents that were just insane. <laughs> you know, just this funny things, you know, that would happen. Like I, was t- I took my dad to the doctor and, you know, I looked up at the board and I'm like, oh my God, dad, we've been to every department in here except OBGYN. And my dad goes, well, take me there. Maybe I'll get lucky. <laughs> what? You know, and that sort of thing that, that happens, uh, you know, all the time with us. And, but as well as some, you know, more serious, you know, health issues, like what is happening here? And so just sort of sharing that on Facebook is where this uh, grew out of, and then, uh, and then the, the community aspect of it of people coming with, oh my God, your dad did this, or my mom did this, and I would also talk about it, you know, in my act, you know, on stage. I was talking about my parents and these weird things that are happening, and without fail, I, much like you said in the beginning of the interview, I would have, you know, people my age or people older come up to me and just start talking to me about their parents. You know, they would tell me, you know, you know, oh, my mom won't use a cane, you know, because she, she's so vain or, or my dad is dating and he's 82. Like, how do I deal with that? You know, and, and then I started meeting sort of two groups of adults. There were the adults that like, oh, my God, I know exactly what you're going through. And then the other, you know, older adults going, wow, you still have your parents, which freaked me out because it's like, yeah, I still have them. Where are they going? <laughs> You know, in the complete denial that, yeah, at some point, you know, gather ye rosebuds while ye may, uh, they're not always going to be here. You know, neither are we. So how do we now uh, face that reality and, and make the most of it without losing our sanity? And I think it's important to talk about these issues, especially in the United States, because oftentimes in our culture, we just like to stick people in homes and forget about them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the other thing that made me, you know, want to do this because as I'm, you know, going through this, like, there's nothing. There's nothing out there. There's no, you know, I'm, I'm running into people and getting things anecdotally. And then there's the, you know, people that want to sell us insurance, you know, or put them in a home. And it's all this, like, legal, you know, medical, you know, craziness. And I'm like, well, no, I want to explore the relationship of it. 
you know, the, the nitty gritty of, you know, my telling my dad he can't have bananas <laughs> anymore because they're bad for him. And ha- but how are bananas bad? I'm like, dad, they just are. That's what your cardiologist said. <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm the parent of senior citizen toddlers. Like what happened here? You came back and you were the child and before, and now you're the adult. Yeah, and and I guess luckily it's been a slow thing, and, and even finding that line of where they're fine, they can do things for themselves. You know, they're they're not. You know, they haven't fallen apart completely, uh, which is good. But just this is the first time in my life that that I've even seen that. Oh, oh, this doesn't go on forever. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's also one of the rare relationships that you have in your life that spans your entire life. Yes. You know, the only other relationship is, is if you have a sibling. Um, but yeah, but not even to the degree that your parents have it. I mean, again, you know, they held you as a baby, you know, they remember you when, you know, so, and that is a, an ever changing relationship. Or I think the one that changes, you know, the most and like, how do we do that? You know, how does that happen? And and not everybody's doing it well. You know, they're, they're, you know, adult children that don't speak to their parents, you know, and vice versa. You know, there were hurts or, or things that, that didn't get healed, you know, and how do we do that part of it? I mean, my, I, I'm coming from a very, uh, I don't want to say unique, but, you know, a, a different experience of I actually like these people. <laughs> I know it doesn't sound like it, but I do. You know, I'm a daddy's girl. Me and my mom, you know, we were like best of friends. We'd go shopping all the time, you know, when I was a kid. So, you know, when I, and I, when I got out of my, you know, slightly rebellious teen years, you know, where I thought my parents were complete idiots, and I realized how brilliant, smart, and funny they are, I like them. You know, we have great discussions. We have fun with each other. And to watch them change, you know, is very, it's, it's scary, it's funny, it's, you know, wow, I didn't, I wish I paid attention earlier uh, to this, you know, that things aren't always going to be the status quo, but they weren't the status quo when you were a kid, because they watched you change, and you were just being you. So, yeah, there's a, there's, uh, a lot here. Uh, to explore and have fun with and you know definitely not all gloom and doom but definitely things that are uh, serious and funny has this quest to understand your parents helped you understand or change the way you see yourself absolutely (sighs) honestly it it was in acknowledging their humanity their flaws you know because you know for me you know my parents were like these you know almost like superheroes for a really, really long time. And then realizing, no, they were, they're people who did the best that they could with what they had and their best wasn't always the greatest. You know, like my mom, uh, my mom worked really hard to give me advantages that she didn't have, you know, and choices that I didn't have. Like my mom didn't go to college, you know, she got married at 18. She was a mom very early all of the things she did not want for me. So I went to college. I, you know, was living my life. I didn't have kids. So she gave me, she, she did what I think, uh, what I call, uh, she raised me in, in reaction to how she was raised. 
Like she saw what she didn't like and raised me in the complete opposite. And so then we got to a point where we are incredibly different people. You know, we are very different women because of that. And, you know, the way that she handles things is not the way that I handle things. But yet I'm her daughter. So I have some of the same triggers. I, I get angry the way that she does. I hold that anger in. I don't, you know, I'll be, I don't handle conflict well. And a lot of that came from not because she told me to do it that way, but watching how she did things. You know, she doesn't forgive easily, oddly enough, for a Catholic, you know, and then watching what that does, you know, and realizing I have that same tendency I see what the end game is when you when you don't allow yourself to process hurts or anger in a healthy way. They eat you from the inside. And watching her deal with that now and me taking the lesson of I see that I have that tendency. I don't want that. And now having the ability to do things proactively to change it. You know, it is an amazing gift. It's a painful gift. But an amazing gift. So, yeah, watching, acknowledging first and then, you know, being informed by their humanity and then forgiving them those things that, you know, they're people, you know, that I I think it's hard when you're their kid to let go of. You know, not all things were intentional. They were just doing the best they could, if that all makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's something that we all do, too. We all think that, you know, we're all just doing the best we can as we go along. Oh yeah. You know, it's weird. I thought I'd get to adulthood and I'd get this book, you know, like, Hey, here are the, here are the answers. Here's what's really going on. And it's so not that, you know, you realize how much we're all making it up as we go along, (laughs) you know, and maybe that's part of, you know, being, you know, a free thinker and, or, 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 um, an atheist and going, no, there's, that's not, there's no rule for that. You know, somebody made that up. You know, if they made this up, they can make this up. You know, so it puts the onus on you to sort of uh, live more more thoughtfully, ask more questions. At least I think so. And it relates to this whole idea of life being finite. And this is the only time we have with each other. There is no afterlife. No. You know, it's funny. I'm I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. And I've been trying to hang in there with the latest doctor, but he's, he's no David Tennant. Let's just say that. Um, but he had uh, a line uh, in, in the show last season that I heard it, and it just struck me, struck me very deeply. And he said, it's not that someone dies. That's hard. It's all the days they stay dead. And I heard that and literally had to put the pause on and walk away from the television because it was just one of those lines that it just hit it for me. It hit me right in the heart, you know, and and it speaks of that when that initial trauma happens, when you lose someone, you know, everybody's sort of there, you know, to sort of help you. And there's the funeral and there's those days after, you know, immediately. But then there's the week after that. And the month after that, and the year after that, where that person is still gone, and how we live past that, because we have to, that's, that's, the, that's the gig, you know, not to avoid loss, 
us in pain, but to figure out how to live with it, through it, and find the joy past it. Do you know? Of course you know what I mean. You wrote the book. You wrote the book. (laughs) I wrote that book that you should have gotten that said, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. Yeah, yeah. That's... (laughs) That's uh, that's putting on the big girl panties, so to speak, you know, and not not dwelling in the uh, in the pain. And I listen. I'm not saying I'm good at it at all. I struggle, but it's a choice, you know. It it is a choice to sort of find and attach yourself to those things that are good and happy and joyous for you, and making sure that you're community of people whoever that is whether it's you know assembled or naturally your family it isn't always uh that support you and we support each other through that because we all go through it you know the question is how do we do that and how do we you know get through it with joy and love which you know joy shopping and shoes that's that's how i want to do it (laughs) thank you so much for joining me Chris, thank you so much for having me and letting me babble. Feel free to edit out everything I just said. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. Special thanks to Michael Trollin for his support. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life or the 2016 screening tour, visit theatheistbook.com.